1 John chapter 2, verse 3. And by this, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I am writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Do keep 1 John 2 open in front of you so you can check that what I'm saying is, in fact, what God is saying. Have you ever had the moment when your supposed friend walked away from you, showed themselves to not be who you thought they were, their actions betray their words, and they show themselves up for who they really are? Has that happened to you before? How does it feel to have that happen to you? It's disorientating. Uh, You want the ground to swallow you up. Your world falls apart. Nothing makes sense anymore. Doubt plagues everything. And that's how the Christians who received this letter felt. Their world was falling apart. Nothing seemed to make sense. Everything was plagued with doubt. They desperately needed reassurance. And it's like that with us, isn't it? If you've been a Christian for any reasonable length of time, you'll have experienced dear friends leaving the fellowship. Those are the fellowship who walked alongside you in the light, who sang Christian songs with you, who prayed prayers with you, who read the Bible with you, maybe even taught you the Bible, who then later walk away from Jesus. It's disorientating. We need reassurance. Chapter 5, verse 13, you can turn there if you like. It's John's big aim for this book, for this letter. 
He says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. Know that you have life. Know that you know God. And you see, that is exactly the same aim that we have today. Chapter 2, verse 3, look at it with me. It is John's crystallized aim for us this week. And by this, we know. There's the reassurance. We know that we have come to know him, to know God. Reassurance. Putting it the other way around, you could say it like this. Know that those who left you were wrong to leave. Know that they were wrong to leave. And last week, we asked, should we hide our sin? Uh, The false teachers taught a gospel that gave false assurance because it didn't deal straight up with sin or apply the blood of Jesus to sin. That was their first major problem. And this week, the question changes somewhat to something like this. Does everyone who leaves hate us? Does everyone who leaves hate us? Look down with me, verse 9. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother. Conversely, verse 10, whoever loves his brother. Verse 11, but whoever hates his brother. Verse 9, hate. Verse 10, love. Verse 11, hate. Does everyone who leaves hate us? And let me start with the primary punch that John is aiming to land today. Notice, though, that the surprise is less about punching us and more about punching the false teachers. We'll feel it as we go along. John wants us to realise that they walked away because they hate you. Bottom line, they don't love you. They hate you. That is why they left. And look, it, it might not look like that. It might not feel like that. You might have all sorts of past experiences that tell you otherwise. But right now, their actions betray their words. They hate you. That's why they left. And that might shock John's readers, but ultimately it is there to help them, to grow their assurance and to keep them really safe. This passage is designed to knock out the false teachers and not us. What do I mean? Is this a love test to determine if you're a Christian or not? I don't think so. Why? Well, if this is some kind of love test for us, I'm not sure anyone would pass it. Sure, I don't hate the brothers, but loving them, uh, loving them like verse 6, look down, in the same way in which Jesus walked, that is obviously the bar of perfection. Perfect love. Well, then we'd all fail, right? We'd all fail. Is that reassuring? If the text said, hate in contrast to like, then maybe I'd be reassured. If the text said, hate in contrast to love a bit, then maybe I'd be reassured. But hate in contrast to perfect love makes it hard for me to be sure which of the two extremes I'm going to land in. And John's aim is reassurance. That is very clear, isn't it? 2 verse 3, as well as the emphatic statements in verses 12 to 14 of our passage. I write to you, fathers, because you know him. 
They definitely do know him. So we need to make sure that we cut in line with the text's aim. We must, if you like, cut with the grain, as the carpenters would say. Why am I saying all this? Sometimes we can read 1 John, and it can feel like he undermines our reassurance. Highly ironic when you get to chapter 5, verse 13. And that's because we've forgotten who the punch is designed for. When undermining assurance happens, we must go back and we must think really carefully. This so-called love test is not a test for me, but a test for them out there. The punch of this passage is designed to knock out the false teacher and to so reassure us as to why they are out and that I am in the right place. Expose them, not beat us up. And we shouldn't be asking, how can I love more? Have I loved enough? That would be disabling. Let's dive into the detail and feel John's punch. Like last week, um, John used a trio of statements, chapter 1, 6, 8, and 10, if we say, each with spiralling precision to make his point. And so too, again, John uses a trio of statements spiralling to his point, the climax being, they hate you. Verse 3 is his aim for them, as we've already seen, assurance. And so then the trio starts. Verse 4, look down with me. Whoever says. Verse 6, whoever says. Verse 9, whoever says. And the false teacher would have squirmed more and more as the logic progresses. We'll feel it as we go through. But just notice at this phrase, whoever says. It implies that anybody ever who leaves this fellowship is in the same boat. Even if the Apostle John left the fellowship, same verdict. Whoever says, even if you like, even if William Taylor says, even if the Archbishop says, even if your favourite preacher says. So these verses hold a universal principle for us. Very useful for us to note that now before we get to application later. And we'll structure our time around each of the trios, as you can see on your handouts, if you've got that in view. Firstly, verses four and five. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commands. Do you feel the openness already? How vague he starts? He's enticing us in, isn't he? Uh, The false teachers would probably be purring right now. Hmm, That's right, obedience. You must obey all the commands. Note the plural, commands. And verse 4, whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments. False teacher nodding along in full agreement, perhaps pleased to hear the harshness. Verse 4, they're a liar. The truth isn't in them. Maybe the false teacher loves strict religious practice. What's it saying, though? Simply this. Knowing God means having a desire to listen to his words and do them, even when they say hard things. But there's lots of questions up for grabs, aren't there? We need more specificity. What commands exactly are we talking about? Such vagueness suits the false teachers at this stage. And what exactly is the love of God in verse 5? That love could be one of at least three things 
Is it God's love for us, our love for God, or our love for the brothers, which comes from God? Any could be in view here. We can't be sure. John's enticing us in. And how does uh, whichever love is in view exactly uh, get perfected or completed, finished? We need more clarity. So then John tightens up the grip on the thumb screw. Our second point, verses six to eight. Whoever says he abides in him ought to be like Jesus. Notice here how he reverses it and makes it not just the negative, but does the positive and the negative at the same time. I look down with me at verse six. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The false teachers have to take a sharp intake of breath here. Hang on a second. We have our own set of rules. You can't just bring up Jesus and make him the standards. See, abiding in Jesus could literally be translated here to live in him, to live in Jesus, to abide in him as he walked. Now, what does that mean? How are we to be like Jesus? We need more specificity still. Uh, We certainly can't be like him in every way. I hope that much is obvious to us. It's a huge statement. Uh, There must be something specific John is talking about. And notice now how the commandments, which were plural and undefined, verses 3 to 5, have suddenly sharpened into a singular one. Verse 7, an old commandment, singular. Verse 8, also a new commandment, singular. And so John teases them here. Which commandment is in view? Verse 7, it's not new, it's old, from the beginning. Okay, so maybe from Genesis, somewhere like that? That's an old commandment. That which was from the beginning, like the opening of the letter. Is that what John means here, from Genesis? Maybe. Then he really teases them. Verse 8, at the same time, it's new. It's a new commandment that I'm writing to you. Hang on, John. Is it old or is it new? How can it be both? What are you going on about? Stop with the brain teaser already. And what John must be referring to here is Jesus' command to love. John chapter 13, verse 34. You can look it up later. Jesus says this. A new command I give you. Love one another. A new command I give you. Love one another. It's new because Jesus himself said it was new. But it's also old, verse 7. They had it from the beginning. That is, from when they first heard the gospel. This is old hat to these guys. It was part of the gospel they had taught to them from the beginning. At the start of their walks with Jesus, in that beginning, they were always told this. Always told to love their church family. It's new and it's old. And the point of this is really plain, isn't it? John isn't making anything new up. This isn't the commandment. This is the commandment of Jesus himself. It's the ultimate new commandment that Jesus introduces in John 13. But it's also nothing newfangled or odd. John's not making this stuff up. The false teachers are making stuff up, perhaps, but not John. He's not. And John introduces the 
true spiritual realities as he prepares for his knockout punch in verse 9. Look at the end of verse 8. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. In other words, the world is binary in two categories, light and dark. But it's very complicated. The darkness is only fading right now. The world is full of shadows. Is that a little bit scary for us? Christians, you shine brightly in this moment, even if others are stepping into the shadows again and again and again. I wonder if the false teachers would have said that they were the ones who have seen the light, who walk in the light, who maybe have found the greater light. Do you suddenly feel the stakes being lifted? And so we hit verse 9. Hatred is now unmasked, exposed. Our third point and the climax of the trio. Whoever says they're in the light but hates his brothers. Verses 9 to 11. They're in the dark and they're blind. There's a direct contradiction between the words these guys say and the action these guys do. They can say they are Christian all the light. I'm in the light, I'm in the light, I'm in the light. But if they hate you, they hate the church family, if they've left you, according to John, they are clearly blind and in the dark. They are deluded. They are wrong. Because they have ignored the words of Jesus to love you. John reverses his point for clarity in verse 10. Here's the positive. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light and in him there is no cause for stumbling abiding in Jesus living in him means you love your brother in Christ when you come to the light there'll be no reason to stumble nothing will be able to stumble you it's hard to trip up in the light isn't it now we've had the lights turned back on just about Um, you can see plainly can't you this is what it's like to be here Whereas darkness hides all the hazards. Just try and walk through a pitch black room at night time. Even if it's a room you know the layout of really well, just try it. How easy is it? Such a simple task in the daytime is suddenly extremely hazardous in the night. Much easier to stub your toe at night time. I won't tell you about how the camping trip went last night because I very nearly stubbed my toe twice in the space of a minute. John turns back, though, to the negative in verse 11. Look at the end of verse 11 with me. Darkness. Blind. Of course it does. When you walk into a dark room, you may as well be blind. You can't see anything, and you'll trip up over and over and over and over. What's John trying to teach us here? Those who have left you, they hate you. They can't stand walking in the true light with you and with Jesus. That's why they left you. They are definitely not onto something superior, quite the opposite, in fact. Last week, they they did not like having their sins exposed. And this week, frankly, they don't like you. Now, notice how we're not going to apply today. This is not 
uh, sorry, the issue is they hate you and not our imperfect love. Uh, This is not a beat up. This is not a pull your socks up. This is not try even harder to love each other this week. Uh, Even if that would be a good thing for us to do. Uh, That is just not what this is teaching us. It would be so easy for me to stand here and lambast you this morning, to be honest. To beat you up with all the ways we might fail to love each other. For all the ways we fall short of the command in John 13. To love one another as he loved us and set us that example. But that's not how we apply this. So how should we apply? Positively. Uh, We need to understand why they left. To be reassured as to why they left. And that we are not wrong to remain in this fellowship. To remain latched on to the teaching of the Apostle John who John, who saw Jesus, who heard Jesus, who touched Jesus. Remember the start of chapter 1. Why is this so hard, though, for us to believe? I think at least three reasons. Firstly, normally, those outside hating us is not obvious. This reality is not usually plain for us to see. What do I mean? Uh, Those who depart from the fellowship um, don't often show their hatred, although there are exceptions, uh, which I'll tell you about shortly. But they don't often hiss uh, and spit at us in a very obvious way. They're, They're not overtly obvious with their hatred. And that makes this harder to believe. Uh, This passage, though, is helping us see reality. Uh, They hate the light. They can't stand the light. And you are the light. So they hate you. This is not obvious. That's firstly why this is hard to believe. But also, secondly, uh, nowadays, I think uh, we in this room tend not to spend much time with these people. So we don't realize this reality very quickly because we usually hang out with our own types, if you like. So we rarely have the exposure to feel this. And thirdly, why is this so hard to believe? We expect this from the world. That would be normal. Not though from those who were so close to us once upon a time. They were in the light. They had tasted, but they walked away. And that is a very hard pill to swallow. When I went to interview with the Church of England to become a vicar, I remember realising just what a dirty word being from one of our churches was. Uh, By that I mean the, the kind of church who teaches the Bible and doesn't pick and mix their own version of God. And more often than not, if I mentioned the name of our wonderful church family here, people recoiled in disgust. Uh, particularly if uh, you're 10 minutes into the first meeting and so far they actually seem to like you. Uh, They can't quite believe that they nearly liked one of us. They're really surprised at that. I have a very dear friend called Tracy, who some of us know. Tracy's not a vicar, but she was invited to a special Church of England meeting for vicars uh, to discuss something called living in love and faith. 
which is supposed to be an open forum to discuss matters of sexuality and marriage. So a small group met, and they welcomed discussions about how they were feeling to be there. Anxious, said one person, and Tracy felt the same. So she said this, and I quote. This is what she said. I'm very anxious here too. I've been a Christian for about nine years, and I realized I was gay way before that. And then I get invited here to be part of this discussion. And every time I meet a new person, they ask where I go to church. And it's quite intimidating. I say I go to St. Helens Bishopsgate. And I can see by the looks on your faces how you feel about my church family. And it's really awful feeling because they are my church family. They're loving and kind and servant-hearted, and they treat me the same as everyone else and point me to Jesus. It doesn't matter that I'm same-sex attracted. They're not homophobic. William Taylor is not homophobic like lots of you think he is. In that moment, Tracy was cut off by a woman uh, shouting and crying in opposition. And what followed was a visceral verbal attack towards Tracy, who was clearly the outsider of the group with the very lowest status there. Hatred. The lady was a vicar who is an advocate for same-sex marriage, who used to identify within our kinds of fellowships, but who is now lobbying for a change in the church's definition of marriage away from the Bible. She was so angry. Her response was so aggressive. She hates us. Normally, of course, she doesn't appear to be like that. She's normally quite good at smiling and suppressing her real feelings. See, this is a story, a rare story, because it unusually shows how they really feel about us. Normally, we won't see it. Often it is not clear. They'll either hide their true feelings or maybe even lie to themselves. But in our world of plural truth, where all truth is equal for some unbeknownst reason, this really helps us have great clarity to be sure that we are in. And there might be times where you, like Tracy, you get hated upon by supposed Christians. And in those moments, you can remember this passage and have real assurance as to why. As we close, just two very quick but crucial caveats, I have to say. First, we must resist judging people. Uh, Sometimes people drift in and out of our fellowship as they fight sin Sometimes people leave and come back years later. We must give people lots and lots of time to wrestle with sin. We must be full of grace. We must be kind and gentle. We must never be quick to decide somebody is in the dark or blind. We are not the Apostle John. And this passage was never intended to make the fellowship, i.e. us, judge anybody. Or worse still, for us to pull up the drawbridges and not let them come back. That is not our place. 
Secondly, we also don't want to become victims. Um, Self-pity is always so ugly. When people leave us, it is desperately sad, isn't it? But we shouldn't become victims and feel sorry for ourselves. Um, They're the ones in the dark. They're the blind ones tripping over every stumbling block as if they're walking around with their eyes shut. Uh, We must pray for them. And to a large degree, I think we should feel kind of sorry for them. But never ourselves. This should never make us introspective and self-pitying. We're not the victims in the scenario. John wants to expose the hearts of those who've left. That in turn will give us great confidence, assurance. That's why John closes the first section of his book with those gloriously clear statements in verses 12 to 14 to the children, to the fathers and the young men. When your supposed friend walks away from you, you need to know that you're in the very right place. Be very reassured, Christian. You do, definitely do, know him who is from the beginning. I'm going to pray as we close. Heavenly Father, thank you for these very comforting, assuring words. Help us hear them as you intended. Help us know that we know you. In Jesus' precious name and for your eternal glory, we pray. Amen.